Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. A very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, this morning, the UK has become the first Western country to approve a virus vaccine. The offering from Pfizer and BioNTech they, has been cleared by regulatory authorities, and the government's going to make it available in Britain from next week. Yet good news finally on the horizon. Matt Hancock saying that 50 hospitals are ready to administer the vaccine and the UK has ordered 40 million doses, which is enough to vaccinate 20 million people. Remember, you've got to have two doses of this one. The vaccine needs to be stored at around minus 70 degrees Celsius. That's going to be one of the big challenges of the huge logistical effort that is delivering the vaccine. The health secretary admits this is an added complication. This is a challenging rollout. The NHS in all parts of the UK stands ready to make that happen. They're used to handling uh, uh, vaccines and medicines like this with these sorts of conditions. That was the health secretary. Well, let's bring in Bloomberg's UK health reporter, James Payton. James, thanks for being with us. What's the rollout going to look like? Yeah, that is a good question. That's a big question on everyone's mind. So now that we have this approval, obviously the the focus you know will quickly shift to the deployment who is going to get this first and and when uh this is a massive mobilization uh you know that is planned to to combat you know what the government has called the biggest peacetime threat uh in its history the coronavirus and and this is not going to happen overnight as you say uh the uk is going to have enough doses to protect 20 million people and those doses are going to come gradually and be given to people over months. At least that's the plan. So it's going to start with care home residents and staff. At least that's the plan. Then people over 80, healthcare workers, followed by the wider population based on uh, risk levels and uh, and ages. So uh, this is going to um, you know this is going to pose a number of challenges that need to be overcome. But obviously this is a uh, uh, a very important uh, day with the uh, approval and. You know, the first Western country to uh, to uh, approve a, a coronavirus vaccine, which is quite interesting. Yeah, it is going to be a mammoth effort, isn't it? I mean, on that, the first Western country to approve a coronavirus vaccine it is raising some concerns in various quarters around safety and just how quickly this was pushed through. Should people have any concerns about taking this? Well, you know, that is the uh, big question that healthcare systems everywhere uh, and governments are, and companies are going to have to uh, deal with. Um, you know, the regulators will stress that just because this moved so quickly doesn't mean that any corners were cut. 
that you know this is a rigorous um, process that has been carried out, and you know we've determined that the vaccine is safe and effective. Now, you know this has moved at record speed. Um, this is going to smash all records for vaccine development. Having a vaccine developed in this amount of time, people are naturally going to have questions about efficacy uh, and safety. And you know, one big question is the safety of these vaccines, this Pfizer vaccine and others, are going to have to be monitored over many months, you know, to make sure that this continues to be safe and that there aren't any problems in the population. Um, But clearly, you know, vaccine hesitancy, there's skepticism out there, there are worries about whether this is safe and effective. So those are issues that that governments, manufacturers are going to have to uh, uh, contend with. Well, James, I suppose you've got those on the one side who might have doubts. Others, on the other hand, only too keen to roll up their sleeves. And uh, who's going to be first? What's the priority list? Yeah, yeah. So the priority list, um, basically, the plan that the government has put out um, suggests that they're going to start at care homes. Uh, These are older people at care homes uh, and the people who take care of them um, at those facilities. So those 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 should be the first people. Obviously, then they'll focus on, uh, you know, people who are 80 years old uh, uh, and up. And then healthcare workers, these are the people, obviously, on the front lines, the people who are at risk um, of contracting COVID-19 and, and uh, spreading it to others. So, uh, you know, that will be how it plays out. So I think, you know, some people will expect they, they'll be able to roll up their sleeves straight away. It, it could take some time, depending on what part of the population uh, you're in. And obviously, people have, you know, been critical of the government's um, yeah. uh, strategy and, and response over the past several months. And so some people worry that the vaccine deployment could run into the same kind of snags as, you know, testing and contact tracing uh, and, and parts of the plan like that. So all of those things will be, you know, the pressure is really on the, on the government uh, now, needless to say. James, thanks very much. James Payton there, Bloomberg's UK health reporter on the ways of getting the vaccine out now that it has fully been approved. Yep, we've got to remember what happens in the background, though. England exiting its second national lockdown, moving into a revamped three-tier system. Not everyone's happy about it. MPs voted to back those measures last night, but you had over 50 Conservative backbenchers voting against Boris Johnson's new measures. If you hadn't had Labour uh, and the rest of the opposition abstaining, you would have seen, uh, or if they had voted against, rather, you would have seen uh, this be a loss for Boris Johnson. 99% of the country is in the toughest two levels, remember, which restrict different households mixing indoors. Joining us now is Dave Mountford from the Forum of British Pubs, one of the industries at the centre of this. Dave, what does getting a vaccine approved mean for your industry? Well, in terms of the vaccine, that would be, you know, obviously a, a bit of a lifesaver. I don't want... Um, it's, it's, it's not a silver bullet, of course, because our industry is very much based on um, the economic climate. Uh, you will no doubt be aware that pubs have been de- in decline for the last, you know, 15, 20 years. One stage, 19 pubs a week were shutting, and that was, you know, very much accelerated after the 2008 crash. So, you know, I... I would hate to um, give the impression that as soon as everybody's vaccinated, we are all going to be, you know, everything's going to be rosy in the garden because it's not. Um, we're reliant on, I mean, some pubs are, are basically reliant on whether the sun comes out or not. So, you know, uh, tourism uh, uh, and, and, and that sort of aspect is, is vitally important because consumer, consumer confidence and consumers actually having any money in their pockets to spend. Um, so, you know, there are, there are a lot of factors to consider. 
but you know i won't pretend that obviously um the the vaccine will mean that at least the government can start act, acting in a manner which i would describe as being reasonably rational about the hospitality industry well, one interesting aspect of all this, and it's got a lot of publicity, has been the extent to which some of the, the, the curbs to do with substantial meals, how that all works out with sort of headlines about scotch eggs and who knows what. Are the rules even clear uh, to pubs? Right. No, they're not. And, and I mean, this is the fundamental issue, and I speak as someone who has been liaising with government quite closely on, on the issue. The fundamental issue is... The government have made a decision, and I believe this is an opinion of mine, but I believe it's, it's very much based on what I've seen. And, and the government have made a decision that they've got to trade off an area of the industry or an area of, uh, of, of, of normal life against things that they consider to be more important, like education. Now, I get that. I understand that. And, I mean, that was pretty much signposted by, by Chris Whitty about three months ago. We're going to open up. Uh, we're going to open up education, but we're going to shut down hospitality. It's pretty much what he said, and that's pretty much what's happened. The problem is the government do not understand the hospitality industry, and they certainly don't understand pubs. And they don't understand how pubs are operated, how they're owned. Uh, they don't understand the level of rents. They don't understand that uh, pubs are very old buildings, and therefore their costs to run are extremely, uh, extremely expensive because they're inefficient. And you get ministers basically faced with these questions, which they, they know that they can't really defend. So I think the Scotch Egg one came from, uh, I think it was George Eustace, I could be wrong. But it was a minister who kind of made a throwaway comment, and then the government just had to defend it. Basically, if they'd have just come out and be a lot more honest, and basically have said quite clearly that we're shutting hospitality down and we're doing it for these reasons and we're going to support them financially to this level, then I think a lot of the issues would have gone away. But because they've just used us a bit of a scapegoat without too much thought or consideration, um, they, they, they basically exposed themselves up to you know, a lot of criticism. Um, I mean, we actually saw the evidence last week for the first time about transmissions and it was i've got to say pitiful it was very four very short paragraphs the majority of the evidence that was cited was from uh, asian countries um the majority of the evidence uh, had absolutely no relation to pubs in this country and hospitality in this country which are all very well you know structured and and completely different to the way pubs are operated or, or bars are operated in in vietnam and singapore for example um, and that was the evidence that they, they used. Uh, and Dave, you're a publican yourself. Tell me about how your pub has, has managed throughout this whole lockdown period. Um, we're lucky uh, in the fact that my pub, our pub is privately owned, therefore it is free of tie. So we don't have uh, the, the burden of paying an extraordinary large amount of uh, money for our beer. We, we are profitable. We've been here eight years. Um, that being said, my, my landlord, unfortunately, has still asked for full rent. Uh, which is, uh, whilst it's uh, uh, an accurate figure, uh, uh, I would say, I use that word, an accurate rent, because many rents in this, yeah. in this country that tied tenant experience are not, is not accurate at all. They're grossly inflated. Um, but for those reasons, we will make it, I think. Uh, we've had to borrow a bit, a, quite a big chunk of money, which I don't like doing at the age of 55 years old. Um, but we have. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Well, let's get into Brexit, because the EU's chief negotiators told ambassadors from the bloc that the three main obstacles to a trade deal with the UK remain unresolved. The three areas, well documented, of course, fishing, the level playing field and enforcement. And even though negotiators are racing to get a deal this week, Michel Barnier says he cannot guarantee that there will actually be an agreement. Well, for more on all of this, let's bring in Bloomberg Opinions, Therese Raphael. Uh, Therese, I mean, we've had so many crunch times for Brexit over the years. I'm almost getting nostalgic thinking back to the first ones. Is now really the time to start panicking? Yeah, well, it's it's pretty clear that we are now at you know, what someone called the real end game. Um, and, I, and I remember the word end game being used, you know, oh, maybe two years ago, saying we are, you know, now is a crunch time. But, you know, December 31st is literally around the corner. And a certain amount of time is required for the European Parliament, for uh, member states to approve this agreement, if there is an agreement. So um, I think, you know, we're talking about a, a matter of days um, before something would have to happen for a deal to actually take place uh, and, and be implementable by January 1. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, 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 I guess the one way you, reason you'd say it's not time to panic is if you look at the difference between a deal and no deal and conclude that it actually, you know, it isn't such a big difference, but you know, it is for a lot of industries that trade for tradable goods, for auto, um, it is for uh, you know for border controls, for future UK EU relations. So you know, while the actual terms of an agreement may not look so different from No Deal, it does sort of put things on a very different thing going forward if they're unable to conclude something in the in the days ahead. Yeah, Therese, I mean, again, it seems to come down to the will to do a deal. And, and to some extent, that focusing perhaps more on London than it does Brussels suggestions that David Frost, the chief UK negotiator, hasn't really had uh, much face time, as it were, uh, with Boris Johnson in recent days. Boris has had a few other things on his plate, I suppose. And that unless or until there's a full-throated uh, uh, engagement on this, it's simply not going to happen. There have been one delay after another, including, you know, as we saw, um, because I, you know, members of both negotiating teams having to isolate uh, because of COVID. But, you know, I guess one thing we need to think about is what happens if they simply uh, cannot conclude something in the next few days. And I think there are two options there. One is, you know, we could get 
uh, a later agreement sometime in, in later in December, and then it would be provisionally applied. So there would not be time for all of the ratification processes, but they would agree to provisionally apply the deal and then go through the formal ratification processes. And that has all sorts of problems. It's not clear the European Parliament is going to be very happy with it, or indeed the UK Parliament. But, you know, that that's a possibility, and that gives them a little more time uh, if something doesn't happen in the next few days. The other option that is looking increasingly likely is that they make enough progress, but they leave with no deal. And but they leave in a way that they're able to keep talking after January 1st. So it's not this dramatic moment where one side or another storms out of the negotiating room or they declare that they, they just can't agree. They simply try to um, to say, you know, we've made sufficient progress in certain areas. We don't want to rush this. We're going to take the time pressure off and restart in January. And that has lots of consequences, of course, and it would be considered um, a failure on, on both sides. But it's not out of the realm of possibility now. Yeah, I see that being a very difficult sell in Britain, at least. Got to ask you about the virus as well, Therese, particularly the vaccine that we saw approval today. Uh, Matt Hancock saying we're going to be through COVID by the spring now. That sounds a little bit optimistic. What's your take on that? optimistic. I mean, I think a lot depends on what happens um, in January, to be honest. We've now uh, got uh, the new tiering system, so we have to see how that works. It's stricter than the old tiering system, and as you've seen in recent days, Boris Johnson had a a lot of pushback from Conservatives, a big revolt uh, last night in Parliament did manage to get the, the legislation passed. But, you know, also, we see what happens over the five-day period in Christmas, where Johnson is allowing households to mix. Uh, does that uh, lead to, as some epidemiologists have worried, a third wave of the virus? So whether we are sort of free and clear by Easter depends on how quickly they can roll out a vaccine and how well the new tiering system goes. Um, and I would say also on whether that rapid testing becomes a kind of thing that, that we see throughout um, different regions of the country. Uh, so it, it is. It does feel optimistic. It should hopefully be much different in the spring. But the, the, the idea that we're kind of through it all is uh, it's, it's very appealing. But uh, I think we'll have to wait and see how things go this Christmas. Yeah, and I suppose if one were perhaps a, a rationally sceptical person, one might look at the government's record on the sheer logistics of managing things like this. If you look at the PPE sourcing of that that seems to have gone badly wrong, if you look at the t- testing system that, again, didn't quite deliver as it was supposed to, you might stand back and say, well, do we really trust this lot to get the vaccine out in a reasonably speedy and efficient manner? No, absolutely. There have been... So many um, missed, uh, overpromises, underdelivered uh, pledges, missed deadlines, and that sort of thing. I mean, I suppose in the government's defense, they would argue that they've learned past mistakes. Um, maybe one positive, just how involved the British uh, military is in the rollout of the testing. Um, on, on, actually, on you know pretty much every aspect of policy right now and where the military has been involved it's been quite effective so you know remains to be seen but i think what we saw with the gut with the revolt from the Tory backbenchers is that even in Forrest Johnson's own party trust has really been eroded by all of those missed targets that you you know you just listed 
And, and what about the Brexit story going on in the background? How does that play with the vaccine delivery? I mean, this vaccine is made in Belgium. Is there a risk that we see supply chains disrupted here? We're less than a month away now from the end of the transition period. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation about what happens if you know you need you need well you 30 million doses of the vaccine would come in a year presumably how that works. We certainly are going to see a lot more friction at the border because even if they agree zero tariff arrangement, there are customs declarations, there are rules of origin uh, requirements to be met and that sort of thing. And you know the other question is whether the revolt over the lockdown is going to trans to a lot of pushback and were to compromise uh, too much in the eyes of Brexiters on this deal. And I think that's another of, you know, the things that's, that's preventing a breakthrough right now. As you said, it's political at this point. How much can Johnson give? Well, his, you know, back bench is telling not very much. So, yes, the two are very limited. What about Johnson's political problems in all this? Because clearly the vote that that he had, it went through, he didn't lose it, but he did have a very large number of his own backbenchers, many of them people who are new entrants, um, going against him, uh, and and quite significantly so. People have been talking about a pattern, really, of rebellion now in a government that, after all, has a big majority. Just standing back, is it a big worry for him, do you think, going forward, that he can't rely necessarily on the loyalty of his party? It's probably not an immediate worry because there's no election coming, but it certainly has to be uh, a worry over the sort of medium term. Because if you look at the uh, almost reverence with which Johnson was held when he won that election, you know, not even a year ago, and how much the respect, the trust, the, you know, the, the just loyalty has been eroded, and it's pretty astounding. And I think what Johnson will be desperately hoping for is that moving Britain out of the, the sort of worst of the pandemic, getting out of lockdowns, as Matt Hancock you know, is saying, by the spring, will lift some of this kind of gloom and rebellion and allow, um, you know, allow him to, to at least have the semblance of more control. But, you know, let's not forget the economy is in um, you know, pretty bad shape after all of this. There will have to be a spring budget that's going to mean choices over spending and taxation. And that's also going to be uh, controversial. So I, I, I don't see um, I don't see this ending anytime soon. I think that that sort of horse of unity is, is bolted and uh, it's, it's a real it will be very difficult to put it back. Uh, and one of the big dissenting voices are those MPs who want to prioritise the economy and really see that as something that needs to be protected first and foremost. And that plays into the vaccine argument as well. If you vaccinate younger people earlier, you can get the economy moving earlier as well. Uh, do you think we're going to see that as a very gr- vocal lobby within Parliament as the rollout gets underway? Well, this it is quite interesting because there have been a couple of studies that suggested that we ought to vaccinate, vaccinate by order of um, uh, contacts with people so we can control the transmission. It's hard to see that really uh, having less as an argument in Parliament, simply because I think people understand the uh, urge to vaccinate the most vulnerable first, and particularly given what has happened in care homes in Britain, um, it, it would be very hard, I think, to... Uh, you know, to really mount a, a yeah. strong movement for not vaccinating the elderly first. That yeah. said, you know, the, the Pfizer vaccine has to be cold stored, so getting it into care homes is not that easy.
Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.